Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Yes, so I see the migraine head. Yeah, I think please call me Angela. I'm, I'm hoping that just to be very casual. Very good. Okay, perfect. Um, I was telling Zach what's happened in the last, but you know, I've been on this sort of all meat diet. One of the unfortunate um, negative side effects I just noticed is that my head came off. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. <laughs> it's, one of the, it's one of the bad side effects is your head falls off. No, I'm just kidding. So, anyway, welcome for coming on. Uh, you know, for those that don't, and I know you, you I guess you specialize in, in headache type stuff, but for those that don't know your background, um, can you just kind of fill us in a little bit, just a quick maybe five-minute summary on, on some of that stuff, if you can? Sure. Uh, gladly. Uh, thanks for having me on, by the way. Um, my migraine started when I was about 10, except that nobody knew it was migraine. Uh, it started what we today call cyclical vomiting syndrome, um, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, that kind of stuff. And everybody just chugged it off. Oh, just a viral infection. Go home. And it really didn't start to hurt until in my late 20s and was not diagnosed until my mid to late 30s of having migraines. And so after so many years of really having a horrific time and it increasingly so, so rather than tapering off, even postmenopausal, or they tell you you'll lose it, no, it increased. So it got to the point where I said, okay, that's it. I quit all my jobs. I was teaching in university. I was doing research in Germany at Max Planck Institute. So that's it. I'm coming home and I'm going to figure this out. So this happened about 11, 12 years ago. And I read every single book, every single uh, academic article, whatever you can think of, to try to figure out what is it that migraine is that hasn't been discovered? What do the researchers miss? What is this thing that everybody is giving different kind of drugs uh, for and nothing is actually helping? And so it took me uh, several years of reading and studying until I finally, it sort of kind of popped in of this was an electrolyte imbalance. And that's how it all started. I started to experiment on me. And then slowly I started to share to other people who were migraineurs. And then I published the book, the first edition, which is no longer sold. Now it's a second edition. And it became really popular. And then I opened a Facebook group. And so we sort of kind of took off from there. So by now, thousands of people um, have been following my protocol and I'm IBM free and medicine free. So interesting, because you, you said you worked at the Max Planck Institute over there. What, where in Germany is that exactly? Because I'm not sure. I know it's somewhere in Germany. They're all over the place. They have, okay. I don't even know how many locations. I was in Jena, which is um, somewhere on the east, eastern part of uh, Germany. I think it used to belong to the East German part while it was still split. And I think that that particular department closed. Now, my PhD is actually in economics and my dissertation in neuroscience. So I was at the Max Planck Institute at the Institute of Economics, but working on neuroscience. 
So it was a very, so my degree is actually neuroeconomics, which is neuroscience using economic models. So I was within Max Planck in the economics department. That is very, that's an interesting combination. I'm just trying to think how that works. And so I mean, we can get into that a little bit because that's kind of interesting. But we had, uh, well, we've, we've seen some of the research coming out of Max Planck around radioisotopes. So that's what, that's what I'm, I know I've had familiar with them looking at human diet based on radio, you know, stable radioisotope data. So, so you have a doctorate in economics, but you focus on neuroeconomics. Uh, and that's, that's, that's very fascinating. So let, let it, because a lot of, there's a lot of people that have headaches, you know, various types of migraines are just one subcategory of this. Can you talk about headaches in general and then specifically migraine head, headaches and what do we think is going on pathophysiologically uh, because, I mean, I think it's known, but I mean, can you talk about for the people that don't know? Sure. Uh, headaches in general can be from all reasons. It can be from um, stress. It can be from lack of foods, lack of enough water, hot, cold, uh, not enough sleep. That's really a pain. Uh, and it's very easy to define. Uh, you have a pain, you take some over-the-counter painkillers and there it went. Uh, migraines, uh, and there are some other kinds, clusters, uh, headaches, uh, a whole a, a series of headaches. Uh, the, headache, the International Headache Society has a huge list of different kinds of headaches. Migraine doesn't actually have to have a pain associated with it. So it's a, not really a headache. I know that is what people associate with it, but it really is, um, I call it a, a cascade, a hormonal cascade. So it isn't starting as a result of a hormonal imbalance, but the first symptoms are anxiety and all associated symptoms, such as your digestion shuts down, so you're going to vomit, you're going to have diarrhea. Um, so we have a whole uh, set of steps, which is a cascade that leads to migraine, but it has a whole lot of symptoms before the pain period actually arrives if it arrives. Like I said, many migraines don't even come with the pain. So the symptoms of a migraine and to know that you have a migraine really isn't necessarily the pain. It can be that you're very sensitive to light, very sensitive to sounds, a smell is especially. Most of us migraineurs have very much enhanced uh, sensory organs. And so we respond to some of these stimuli that for other people just, oh, well, I smell something. For us, it could be excruciatingly painful. And so the actual definition of migraine, in, to me, uh, as a migraineur and as a scientist, it is quite wrong. Uh, it is not a disease. It is not a neurological disease. It is definitely not a vascular disease, which is what it has been known for a long time. So many of the medications treat the vascular aspects of it, and a lot of migraineurs have put on blood pressure reducing um, medications. Uh, a lot of um, doctors will put migraineurs on uh, neurological drugs, even um, uh, uh, epileptic uh, seizures uh, medications. And so those are completely misunderstood uh, brain functions. So the way I see migraine is that it is genetic. We know that that has been proven and shown and, and um, uh, there are a whole lot of very specific ionic channels that are disrupted by migraine. So I look at it as channelopathy. Channelopathy would be is when um, a lot of ionic, cha ionic channels are not working the way that they should be working. So in the case of a migraineur, given that the migraine brain is so 
hyper excited and so many of our sensory organ neurons have multiple connections. These are all studies already existing, just few people have connected to dots yet. Um, given that we have so many more connections in the migraine brain associated with the sensory neurons, uh, they actually use more sodium. It's really that simple because of the action potentials that are increased and they're quite different in a migraine brain from a regular brain. So in my um, summary for what migraine is, it is really an, uh, an insufficient um, electrolyte mineral content. So we use a lot more sodium than other people do. And as a result, we need to replace a lot more sodium. And also the, the role of carbohydrates should really not be underestimated. Yeah, Angela, I was going to ask you about that with, uh, you know, I guess it's relatively recent when we look at kind of the lifespan of when we started documenting human nutrition. But, you know, there has been a, like a, a push to lower sodium or try to get it like yeah, as low as you can. Have we, did we see like a kind of a spike in migraines where like folks who maybe had the migraine brain before, but were getting ample amounts of sodium, it kind of uh, helped them through it or masked it. And then now it went the, the, the lowering, see these things kind of surface a little more. Uh, yes, I believe it. so. It's a very good question. I don't think there have been studies per se, but in looking at uh, reading literature, uh, I couldn't help but notice that there were fewer migraine cases, um, of course, in, in the 20th century and in the 19th century, but then, of course, the population was also less. So there's, there are no studies that measure the ratio of whether it's an increase in general numbers together with the population or there's an increase in trend. But I did notice um, some time ago, somebody put an article in front of me and it was really interesting because in that particular paper, they looked at, it was a hormonal article for menstrual periods and all, but they were looking at women and they were looking to see um, how, whether um, during their period at their sodium increased or was it the potassium increase or what actually happened. And as a result, they had all the electrolyte tests published in this particular article. And it was extremely interesting to see that what we today consider to be normal sodium ranges on a blood test was way off at that time. Every single person today, if those women were tested today, they would be way hypernatremic. I mean, the, the amount of the sodium level they had was extremely high. And looking at it today, I can clearly see that, yes, perhaps what we have is not sufficient. Plus, many of the migraineurs, when they have an electrolyte test, they come out lower in sodium than on the lower level or sometimes even below the norm. So they're clearly using more sodium. And there is one paper, at least, that I found from 1951 that shows that um, in the urine, migraineurs excrete about 50% more sodium. So there is an increased need for for sodium in migraineurs. Um, I don't know if there were uh, greater associations with migraine earlier before the salt restriction, but we also have to add at that time, less carbohydrates were consumed as well. So there are many factors that affect this question. Angela, let me ask you about, because you had, initially you talked about um, uh, cyclical vomiting, irritable bowel syndrome. Do you see a is there is there a known association between gut problems and migraine headaches? Uh, I wouldn't say it's known. It is known to me, and it's known to the people who work with me. But I'm not quite sure how well science appreciates that, since uh, 
it, they have different names. If you have cyclical vomiting syndrome, it is considered to be an independent condition, correct? So then they would not consider that as part of just simply one step of a migraine. Yet um, what I find is a lot of teenage boys going through puberty from about age through 16, 17, I deal with a lot of boys who have cyclical vomiting syndrome um, and also IBS. Both of those are primarily migraine prodromes. We actually call them prodromes and they're kind of sort of part of the development phase of the migraine brain. And so these boys, when we um, move them onto the carnivore diet, completely cutting all vegetables, everything out, they stop because it is actually apparently caused by carbohydrates. Yeah, interesting. And before we get too much into the into the, the dietary fix, I just want to I just, I just want to sort of pick apart some more of the, the pathophysiology because you talk about it being a channelopathy, whereas the the the, the transporters that, that move these particular ions across the membranes are somehow damaged or not working correctly. And do we have an idea what may cause that channelopathy? I know when we see leaky gut, you know, there's you know, and we, 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 we see when leaky gut occurs, we also see disruptions in the blood brain barrier. And so I wonder, you know, I just wonder if there's a similar relationship with that. I, I don't know if you've delved into that much. I did look into it quite a bit. And, and what you're describing are physiological uh, consequences of uh, a diet, but they're not necessarily genetic. Uh, the migraine brain is a genetic setup for channelopathy. So the, um, if you go to genecards.org, I believe it is, where the genetic human uh, genome database is, so, so link I can send you later, uh, and you just type in migraine and, and uh, all the genes, uh, the SNPs associated with uh, migraine brain will pop up. You're gonna see the first 10 are all ionic channel variances. And the most prominent, the first one I believe is a calcium channel variance, uh, sodium, potassium, there are some glucose transporters that are um, not working properly. Um, insulin is uh, up there as well. So it's very clearly a genetic uh, modification or variability. Now it's really hard for us to tell who's the original and who's the, the, the mutated or, or the variant. And um, I have a theory for this, which I'm hoping one day to publish in a journal that uh, permits some sort of hypothesis where um, if you look at nature and you look at wild animals, uh, what you're going to see, they're extremely alert all the time. And this alertness uh, really predisposes uh, the brain to be a certain setup in terms of electrolytes because of the hyperexcitability. And um, it is possible that the migraine brain is just simply a lack of adaptation to the more modern lifestyle. Because if you take on the kind of lifestyle that does not stimulate overlay these channels to have to react and recharge and do different things, then they don't have a problem. I don't have a problem. Um, as long as I know how to prevent um, the overstimulation and these channels to have to work and do stuff they're not used to doing, I'm doing fine. So I'm suspecting this is probably a genetic primary condition and modern human just changed and the migraines didn't. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I was kind of looking up some research on this and the relationship between, you know, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome and, and headaches in general. And we see something like uh, uh, 50, up to 50% of the people with, with IBS have frequent headaches, not necessarily migraine, but they do have some sort of headache issues and something like, 10 to 20% of the population seems to suffer from migraine headaches. So it's fairly, uh, it, 
unless you've seen data that the, the counter, you know, contradicts that, but that's, that's what I, you know, I've read recently. Um, let's get into, because you mentioned carnivore diet and obviously I, my ears perked up when I heard that. And, uh, you know, I've been, I've been kind of expounding what I think is a, some of the virtues of that. So talk to me about how you, well, just talk to me about diet in general and how you seem, I know you mentioned carbohydrates uh, and carbohydrates basically generally mean plants in general, although there are some carbohydrates you can get some from animal source food, things like dairy and uh, uh, eggs to us to some degree, and even some, some meat if it's particularly fresh. So talk to us a little bit about diet in general and then how you are using that with some of your migraine uh, clients. Okay, cool. It's a very complex question. So let me backtrack a little bit and talk a little bit about the carbohydrate connection and then I get into the diet. Um, completely coincidentally, uh, there is a medical manual. Um, I have, I believe the, I don't know, eighth edition or ninth edition or whatever I have by Longo and all. And it's a medical manual, which you're probably familiar with. It's a little one. It's not big, but it's pretty thick. And page four on the bottom, it explains that when uh, glucose enters the cells, water and sodium both depart. This is something that it seems nobody realizes. And uh, I was really shocked to see that even doctors I've talked to have no idea about this. And this is critical because whenever you have glucose entering the cells means that you uh, either had an internal glucose release or you ate glucose. So these are your two choices. Um, this particular paragraph refers to a diabetic increase, uh, but regardless, it's still glucose enters the cells, it will remove sodium and water. So here is the biggest electrolyte disrupting problem. If glucose enters the cells and it removes sodium, which is disrupted and removes the most important element in the migraine brain for action potential. And so this was my first thought. This, this was something totally coincidental. <clears throat> and once I understood this, I started to experiment. So what is the connection between me eating glucose? And at that time, I was really looking at just standard uh, that most everybody knows carbohydrates. I still ate grains, I still had fruits, uh, vegetables, seeds, nuts, uh, even sweets. At that time, I had no idea. We're talking about 10 years ago. And um, I discovered that every time I do that, the one thing that I discovered right away was edema. Edema showing up on the ankles, on the eyes, wherever people get in different places. So clearly the water was arriving and leaving my cells. So then obviously this is true. So salt and water both leave the cells. So if I, my salt left my cell, what am I using to create, uh, create uh, action potential in my brain? And I didn't. That's when I started to get migraines. So there, I saw a connection between the two. So when I remove the salt, I'm starting to get problem. But if I add the salt back, I'm preventing the problem. So this was the start of my discovery in terms of what migraine actually is and how to prevent it and what to do about it. And then slowly I went on to the food connection. So in terms of food, it was over, I would say three, four years of experimenting what kind of foods would we have to remove in order to reduce the level of carbohydrates to degree that migraineurs could actually survive without the migraine pain or migraine discomfort um, and whatever discomfort side effects they had. And so at the very beginning of my migraine group, which is now my main migraine, migraine group is over five years old, I still, um, bread and other things are still recommended, just uh, high, high grain, uh, whole grain 
items. And I had a test that I called the, the uh, glucose threshold test in which I asked people to uh, drink up a, um, a glass of, I believe it was cranberry juice because we could tell precisely or eat a, a cup of blueberries. So we kind of sort of knew how many carbs were in there. And to see, did they get a migraine? Did they not get a migraine? What kind of symptoms did they get? Did they see any edema, uh, any other symptoms? And it was not a very popular test because everybody always ended up with a migraine. So we stopped doing this. Uh, but this gave me the first instance of understanding that, first of all, it's not just me. It is all other migraineurs the same way, sensitive to glucose coming in. And we were more sensitive to glucose coming in from plant-based products than from animal-based products. So milk does not seem to bother migraineurs at all. And if I'm looking at the population, I believe a very large percent of the population is lactose intolerant. Migraineurs are the opposite. Nearly all are lactose tolerant. So we, if you look back to genetic findings about lactose uh, genes discovered or popping in, it was about 12, 15,000 years ago in two separate uh, tribes. So it is specific to certain people. And given that so many of the migraineurs, over 80%, have absolutely no problem with lactose and can completely enjoy lactose, we are different from other people and uh, perhaps different tribe originally from our ancestry, if we look back. And so uh, I don't consider uh, carbohydrates from uh, food, from uh, animal products equivalent to carbohydrates from plant products. We don't seem to have the same problems from um, milk. With liver, for example, yes, we do, because that would be glycogen. It's the same kind of a glycogen, straight glucose. But lactose, no, it's a combination of, of glucose and galactose. So it's not clearly immediately available without the lactase enzymes which happen in the duodenum, so past the stomach. And so um, it has a different uh, reaction, but glucose in general from any other food, and it's not fructose, it's very particular to glucose. Any food that we eat that is plant matter, even salads, it really doesn't matter what kind, seems to, there's a, a certain threshold which for a migraineur is very low. So I, for example, cannot eat a bowl of salad some migraineurs may be able to, but I can't. So there are differences within migraineurs as well, but we all have the general identical behavior. Yeah, I was, I was looking about the relationship between uh, glucose and migraine and well, particularly metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance. And we see that as people have higher levels of metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, they have a higher symptomatic migraines, I suppose, you know, and, and so do you find that to be the case of people that are that are metabolically unhealthy via things like insulin resistance tend to exhibit worse, uh, you know, clinical uh, pre uh, symptoms for migraine headaches? Yes. In fact, let me reverse this. I would have to say that we now test in a migraine group. Every single migraine coming in has to run a test that I created in lieu of proper testing by uh, the medical um, establishment, which, I, which is a five-hour blood glucose testing. So they have to fast just like any other lab test, and then they have to eat something that is what we call protocol friendly. It does not need to contain glucose, but they need to eat. They need to let us know what they ate. <clears throat> and then they have a five-hour glucose test every 30 minutes taking blood. And I get to find a migrant sufferer who joined my group who does not have some form of insulin resistance. 
Which came first? Um, I would suspect that the insulin resistance is genetic for migraineurs because of the channelopathy, because of the fact that we can't tolerate uh, carbohydrates. We don't know what to do with the destruction of the electrolytes when carbohydrates remove sodium. Um, with our channelopathy, it's impossible for the, the ionic channels to figure out how to suddenly refill with sodium, unless, of course, we add massive sodium, which is what, what, what we do. Um, and so I'm not sure which way to separate, which, which one is the chicken and which one is the egg. I think that um, it is a condition similar to how some Inuit populations didn't like this gene for fructose, for example. Perhaps migraineurs like the gene or have a variant for the inability to do anything with glucose. Yeah, I mean, I, as a medical student, I remember reading about these sodium-gated glucose channels, and and you know, that's way, way, way back in the deep recesses of my mind because you know you don't have much data to take application of this. But I wonder, you know, could you talk about an increased need for sodium for people on on that are experiencing migraines? But does that increased need for sodium seem to uh, be attenuated when we drop carbohydrate out of the diet? That is to say, can you? Can you get away with less sodium in the diet if you if you go on a on a lower carbohydrate or even uh, you know a carbohydrate free diet? Uh, great question. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, yes and no. So there are two answers to this because it depends also on individual activity. Like I am like you, I lift weights um, and also do kickbox. So my sodium need is going to be much higher than somebody who is just sitting at home and doing nothing. But yes. So um, what I found was is that. Um, the way this manifests is if we increase sodium in our diet artificially, we keep on adding sodium um, temporarily, this is going to nudge the whole system into a higher sodium level. We know that, that um, it isn't just the sodium-gated uh, glucose channels. We do need that. Yes, glucose needs two sodium uh, molecules to get into the cell, but there are additional problems with um, uh, glucose because Obviously, it's also in our blood before it gets into the cells, and it causes trouble for the blood vessels as well. Um, much of the medication that migraineurs get, they could be vasoconstrictors. So when we're talking about glucose being in the blood in excess, as well as the vasoconstricting drug, we're talking about trouble right away. And so what I found was is that if we remove glucose from the migraineur's diet as much as possible, so there are alternatives, right? There's a low-carb high-fat diet, and I'm just talking the most common ones that we use today. The low-carb high-fat, which would be about 60% fat and about 20% of the calories coming from carbohydrates and 20 from protein, give and take. Or there could be uh, the ketogenic diet, uh, lots of variations, but the one that I use is uh, starting is 80% fat and 16% protein and 4% carbohydrates. And then there's, of course, a carnivore. So a carnivore has two kinds of one that I call the zero carb, which uh, does not contain um, dairy, and then one the regular, which does, uh, particularly for migraineurs, because we do really good with dairy. And so when I'm looking at the different groups, um, I do find that the sodium requirements differ. The most sodium requirement actually is in a ketogenic diet, which I found really fascinating. But I think that perhaps is because as the body is burning its own fat, a lot more water is leaving the body as well, and so more salt washes out. So that would make a lot of sense. Um, we start out with sort of kind of a ratio of sodium to potassium, potassium to potassium to sodium ratio. 
which becomes less and less important as you head toward a carnivore diet. So there is a, a decrease in the need to consider increasing extrasodium and to even monitor uh, what we're doing as we head closer to the carnivore diet. So there's a trend, uh, at least within my groups in migraineurs, um, that they start with the protocol diet, and the protocol is uh, a quite a complicated diet, which we can talk about if, you, if that's interested, interesting to you. Then they move to the ketogenic diet, usually. In between, if I find that they have insulin resistance, without exception, every one of them is placed on the carnivore diet, so they have no choice. Um, and one of the reasons why they have no choice is because of reactive hypoglycemia. So we want to avoid a very low blood sugar, which the carnivore diet can avoid. Um, but in general, most of them migrate toward the ketogenic diet. And then once they were there, interestingly, they all migrate back to the carnivore diet or they don't even go to ketogenic. So carnivore seems to be the ideal. And we don't really need to measure salt that much at that point. Yeah, I mean, your comment on the ketogenic diet and salt wasting, I mean, as we know, insulin has an effect on, on the renal handling of sodium and water. And, and, and the net effect is to uh, you know, uh, reabsorb that. And so when our insulin is lowered, as it undoubtedly does on a ketogenic style diet and, and often on a carnivore style diet, uh, we, we tend to, uh, you know, not have as much salt. We lose, we lose more salt. So let me ask you a little bit about, so how long have you been doing this protocol and, and can it talk to, talk to us about the successes or lack of success you've had uh, and, and potential issues with, with migraine uh, on this diet? On this diet style? Sure. Um, well, first, uh, I've been officially, the migraine group opened about five and a half years ago. Um, this was simultaneous with the release of my first book. And the first book was only about me. It was my personal uh, experience of how I became migraine free. Um, and then uh, at that time, there was not much success. I had a really difficult time to, to get people to understand what this is about because my idea was so different from anyone else. Increased salt, and yes, you can stop all medication. Are you serious? This is a serious disease. If you need medication and we have to have it. And so I had a really difficult time. I was literally virtually kicked out of every single Facebook migraine group because when I went there and I, I noticed that every single one of them was just talking about medications and nothing else. And people were just competing about taking medications. Well, I'm taking this. Good luck to you. I'm here is hoping. And so, hey, Angela, can you just just uh, just to interrupt here because, again, a lot of people aren't familiar. What sort of medications are typically prescribed for migraines, and what is supposedly the mechanism of action by which they they work? I'm familiar with some of them, but I'm certainly not a I'm not a neurologist and not a headache specialist. So, if you don't mind, just kind of giving sure. us an idea of what the standard of care for migraine is currently, and then and then we can devolve, we can delve into uh, the more diet plate based approach. Sure, absolutely. It's, it's excellent. So uh, in my last book that I published a couple of years ago, I have 30 um, medications uh, that I call drugs of shame. And the number one medication that is being prescribed all the time is Topamax or Topiramata, if you call, which is an anticonvulsant medication usually prescribed for seizures, which originally actually was a weight loss drug, I believe, um, which failed and FDA pulled for that. So that medication is a voltage-gated calcium channel blocker. It also blocks some sodium channels, but calcium is a primary. And calcium is um, nearly the last stage before an action potential. So if there's a voltage, and voltage in the brain is message between neurons. So if one, if say I'm smelling a flower and, and the, the message of the flower scent is 
going to be passed on from one neuron to the next, it has to be the calcium that has to enter the cell and literally kick the neurotransmitters out to the next neuron in order for, for that neuron to know that, hey, there's a message, there's a scent coming in. And so if there's enough scent, there's a big signal going around, then I will recognize the scent. And so they stop this activity by blocking the calcium channels. So the idea behind this is that if you're not stimulating the brain or, or you prevent the brain from messaging a stimulus from one neuron to the next, then you're gonna reduce the pain. Uh, this isn't true, um, but it certainly reduces the messages. The, pro the biggest problem that I find is, in addition to all the side effects, is that neurons communicate and they, by creating connections. So when a communication between two neurons stops, then actually it degenerates, the connection disappears. And so these drugs end up being degenerative. Uh, another kind of drug, and of course there are several, several drugs like this, this is just the most typical one. Uh, another one uh, brand is the SSRI, which is the serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitors, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And there are some versions of SNRIs, SRAs, whatever, there are many kinds. And what these do is these are under the premise that migraine is caused by lack of serotonin for whatever reason. And what they do is um, think of the brain and neuron as a sink. Uh, and you, on a sink, you have a little overflow. So if you leave the water running, then once the water reaches up to a certain level, the overflow will allow the water to, to run out. The inhibitor, inhibition of the reuptake, this is called reuptake in the neuron. So the inhibition of this would be is that now you plug in that hole. So when you leave the faucet running, it's just going to overflow. And so even though it may be a small trickle initially coming into your sink, within a day, it probably is going to be a huge flood in your house. So this is what the serotonin, serotonin reuptake inhibitor does. And there are many about, uh, drugs like this. Prozac is one of them. It's very common. Um, can't even think of a name, but oh, there is, um, a, um, I can't even think of a name. Suddenly it came to me and then it left. But there are just hundreds of them. It's just ridiculous how many people are uh, put on these drugs. And uh, of course, they end up in a lot of serotonin, which has a lot of other issues because most of the serotonin actually is in our gut. So it's going to increase IBS. Um, another group of drugs is going to be a, some sort of beta blocker or ACE inhibitor, something to do with a, a, um, the vascular structure to reduce blood pressure, which is very fascinating to me because I have yet to meet a migraineur who has high blood pressure. We all have subclinically low blood pressure. So to give a migraineur a medication that lowers it further, I think it's a major problem. In addition to the fact that it doesn't work, it can actually cause harm. Uh, we have many migraineurs who ended up with heart damage from drugs like this. And propylenol would be, I'm not even sure if I pronounce that properly. Uh, that is the, the biggest killer medication that people end up getting. And so we try to pull every one of them off right away. This episode of Human Performance Outliers is brought to you by fellow carnivore and Legal Shield associate Doug Lee. Through Legal Shield's smartphone app, Doug is helping to level the playing field by bringing affordable legal services to everyone right on their phones. For just $24.95 a month, families have instant access to a local team of lawyers working on your behalf, providing legal advice, traffic violation assistance, will preparation, IRS audit assistance, family and domestic services, and contract and document review, just to name a few. Doug also offers ID Shield, 
the most comprehensive identity protection and recovery service in all of North America. Members get access to a licensed private investigator to help resolve any identity theft issues that arise. Last year alone, there were more than 780 reported data breaches compromising the identities of nearly 170 million people. Responding quickly to ID theft is the best way to prevent serious complications and protect your good name. Doug offers business plans and gun owners plans as well. So head over to douglee.info, that's D-O-U-G-L-E-E dot I-N-F-O, to get the app and learn more about how Legal Shield has been protecting families for over 40 years. Yeah, so what, what you're saying is migraine headaches are not caused by a pharmaceutical drug deficiency. Exactly. <laughs> very well put. Yeah, so I mean, and, and, and that's, that's very common in all of our, many of our conditions that we, we, we often just kind of throw these drugs at. So let's, let's, get, let's, let's delve a little bit more into the dietary protocols and, and how those things tend to work. Sure. So uh, as I noted earlier, so I have several protocols. The original protocol that I started with, which was very difficult to implement and to even figure out, has now, um, and is still being updated regularly, I am totally open to changes, um, is now a fully low-carb, high-fat diet. Uh, we don't allow any grains, none whatsoever, not even um, grain substitutes, like no almond flour bread or anything like that. So we just simply don't allow them. And when I say don't allow, we really don't allow. I have some administrators in the group who just jump on anyone who mentions anything that they eat that has any kind of a, a grain equivalent in there. And we're not talking about just gluten grains, but all grains, uh, including corn, rice, flax seeds, um, just simply no grains at all. We also cut all starches out. So nobody is eating potatoes uh, or most carrots, uh, any of these starches, they all cut out. All sweeteners, not just sugar or honey, but also uh, sugar substitutes or naturals, everything is removed, um, not because it caused migraine, but because of their possible connection to insulin resistance and obesity, given migraineurs have a genetic predisposition to insulin resistance. So that is removed. Um, we also remove all vegetable and seed oils and nut oils. So um, they can't use that at all, not even cold. Um, our other oils like uh, fruit oils, like olive oils, coconut oils, and, and avocado oil, these they can use, but only cold as condiments. So they cannot heat it. So if they want to cook with anything that's fat, it has to be animal fat. So we use a lot of animal fat. Uh, we encourage only whole foods. So cold cuts, maybe if you really run out of time and you have no other choice or you travel. But generally speaking, um, we are, even in the low-carb high fat, we recommend uh, red meat. If it's chicken, we don't recommend the breast unless somebody has uh, runaway ketones, which we can talk about later than, than I do. Um, we try to get all of our foods from real food, um, including protein. So no protein shakes, no shakes at all, no fruits, um, no juices. Um, the protein shake, there's a little bit of a variant on that uh, for those who are um, athletically really active, but for the general migraine group, no protein shakes at all. And uh, for the fruits, we really only recommend blackberries, raspberries, and strawberries. And that was now, it may change now because we have just discovered a connection to oxalates. So slowly moving away from that. 
And some of the legumes, um, beans has been our uh, best source in spite of lectins, which I know we now have learned how to cook lectins out of it. And they're starch and they're heavy, but they have so much nutrients. And I have some vegetarians uh, in the group. So um, we had to make some allowance there. So uh, legumes to some degree, not much in certain kinds, like black beans are preferred to some other kinds. Uh, we kind of sort of try to go around the area in such a way that they're still okay, even though we don't recommend it for the average migraineur. But if you're a vegetarian, by all means vegan, um, actually to be a vegan and a migraineur is an oxymoron. So we remove vegans if we can. Uh, it's totally up to them. I totally understand their ethical concerns and all. And I support whatever they believe, but it's not compatible with the migraine brain. So we remove them from veganism if we can. And we have been very successful with several who are not quite worse, which is really fascinating to me. Uh, we uh, encourage dairy and encourage milk tremendously because it is an electrolyte, if you consider. Um, it doesn't have enough salt, so we sometimes have to salt milk. I salt my milk. And um, cheeses, uh, heavy cream, we all just thrive on that. And uh, the other thing that I found is migraineurs, if they are overweight, it's usually because of the drugs. Uh, once they stop the drug, drugs, they actually below normal weight. So for us, having a little extra cream or heavy animal fat, no problem. We're not actually gaining any weight on it. We're just simply preventing the stopping of, of the losing of weight. So we, we have quite a limited diet. In terms of vegetables, it's uh, mostly the high fiber, low carbohydrate, the salads and the, the broccoli and the, uh, these kind of, I don't eat any, I don't know by now what they are. Um, but the typical keto type, even on, in the low carb, high fat, only they can eat more of it. And um, in terms of the fats, uh, butter, we're very happy with butter, uh, pork lard, beef tallow, um, duck fat, we just love duck fat. Um, so this would be the standard protocol and majorly increased salt amount. And we have a potassium to sodium ratio we try to keep a hold of using the USDA database. Angela, have you seen any success, perhaps most notably within your the vegetarian groups with just doing uh, an increased like electrolyte solution to kind of increase and have those, those levels balanced out already? Uh, yes and no. For some, uh, those who also already had consumed eggs and maybe fish, so I guess that's called the lacto-ovo, I believe, uh, they are sufficient if they modulate the electrolytes and they cut out those kind of elements that are high carbs, like grains and rice, these kind of things. They're fine. That kind of a food is tolerable uh, in, with respect to migraine brain. Uh, if they don't drink milk and don't eat eggs and don't uh, eat fish or none of the above, that cannot be resolved with electrolytes alone because everything they eat is carbohydrate. And car I see migraine as a carbohydrate intolerance. And so um, since that's all they eat all day long, um, I have not seen any sufficient improvement. They may be able to abort of one particular migraine coming on, but it's not possible to prevent it. Do you, th do you have any vegetarians who are following a high fat, low carb vegetarian diet, just maybe focusing heavily on some of those fruit fats you mentioned, as well as the, if they're lacto-ovo, more eggs and fish? Yes, I have several lacto-ovo and they're much more successful. It's still not 100% uh, as a result of too much vegetables. 
and also because of all of the chemicals in them prevent the anti-nutrients that prevent the nutrient absorption, which would be the benefit for us, uh, the, for the migraine brain, particularly to rebuild the myelin, uh, which is damaged, which is the, the, uh, the brain is uh, basically the white matter where all the neurons go through, which get insulated. That is damaged for migraineurs and also for people with seizures uh, by eating too much glucose and insulin. So we can rebuild that by cutting that back. But if there's a vegan or a vegetarian who doesn't eat uh, enough animal matter, that's not happening. So they're not able to be successful that way, no. Yeah, and so it's interesting you, you commented about myelin. I, I wasn't aware of that was an issue with, with migraine headaches, that there was damage to the myelin. And myelin, again, like you pointed out, was the insulin that surrounds the nerves. It, helps to, 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 to speed up the conduction signals. But there, I've seen some animal data looking at multiple sclerosis, which also has a problem with demyelination. And they've shown that, at least in some animal studies, that they could remyelinate those animals, but only if they got adequate, sufficient cholesterol within their diet. So they had to augment their diet with, with cholesterol, which means obviously animal-based food because there's no cholesterol in right. plants, uh, for that remyelination to be able to occur. So I think that's a fascinating um, facet, which I was not aware of with migraine headaches. Right. And that's a very important point because you very well know that plants have plant sterols, right? But the plant sterols actually have a very bad habit of uh, overcrowding and crowding out uh, cholesterol. So even uh, a vegan who converts to, uh, say, a carnivore diet has a really hard time because it takes a long time for the cells to be replaced such that they can actually use cholesterol. Uh, but yes, we increase cholesterol, so eggs are encouraged, egg yolks are in tremendously encouraged, more so than egg whites, um, uh, because we want to rebuild our cholesterol. And it is ironic, as you very well know, I'm sure from your experience, that our cholesterol profile actually improves um, by eating a lot of cholesterol and by eating a lot of uh, animal fats. So we all end up with much better cholesterol profile than we had before. But in the process, as our cells are capable of replacing uh, themselves. And this is particularly so when we enter um, fasting periods, time-restricted fasting or intermittent fasting that we can do in carnivore or in keto diet. This forces changes in our body. And I think that one of the change is one of the changes that is probably happening is the myelin uh, because, you know, uh, it's really difficult to, to explain, but let me explain my first time when I entered ketosis. It was totally by accident. I didn't intend to, it just simply uh, didn't eat for a day, didn't have time to eat. And by the, by the evening, I was in ketosis. And the biggest difference was for me was that, wow, my brain is silent. I don't hear my brain. It's just was the most amazing experience. As a migraineur, you always hear your brain. There's a buzzing, something is happening all the time and it's on fire and some activity, uh, nightmares, whatever, something is always going on. But the moment glucose and insulin are taken out of the brain to a sufficient level and instead fat is getting in there in a proper level, it seems to silence the brain. And that can only happen if uh, the myelin and the surrounding areas are getting a break and they're able to do their recovery to some degree. Uh, it takes a long time, six months to about a year for the migraine brain to get enough benefit from that, that if then the migraine goes out and has an, I don't know, I'm just gonna say something stupid, an ice cream, a little bit of ice cream, she may not come down with a migraine uh, because there's enough protection, but maybe the second ice cream, she will come down with a migraine. So there's gonna be a limit to it, but there's clearly a healing that's going on. Yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, 
from a from a time standpoint, what it, what what you're typically seeing in clinical practice as far as how long they have to be on a particular diet, and do you find that uh, you know a carnivore diet tends to be the most effective one, or do you find that you get equal results depending on the person and their you know, or does it depend on severity and other factors, or uh, you know how would you steer people versus you know your protocol versus a you know a ketogenic style versus a pure carnivore style, and then what talk about the maybe the length of time and, and the the, the I'm sure there's not all migraine sufferers are exactly the same as far as severity, frequency, and so on and so forth. So how do you how do you prioritize how you how you treat these people? Okay, so it's a very good question. I prioritize based on their five-hour blood test, as we as I mentioned earlier. Um, everybody comes in with some sort of form of insulin resistance, and it varies. So the first priority is: do they have reactive hypoglycemia? And just for those who don't know what that is. When somebody eats a lot of glucose, uh, the blood glucose will increase very fast. And then when it falls back down as a result of insulin, it will go below what it was before. And depending upon how deep that below is, uh, there are going to be variations. Some people crash way too low. Um, a healthy blood glucose would be defined as between 70 and 90 uh, milligram per deciliter. And an unhealthy um, reactive hypoglycemia may go into the 60s. I've even seen it as, as low as 50s, and that would be dangerous. So a person like that could never uh, ever consider the ketogenic diet right away because that assumes certain time-restricted feeding. And so this person clearly isn't ready for that. Um, also, that person should not be eating carbohydrates. So that person will be put on a um, carnivore diet where there will be more of the, what I mentioned earlier, the chicken breast, for example, because they have higher glucogenic amino acids. So they will be put on a different kind of a menu from other people uh, in order to make sure that their body has enough glucose, uh, their body is capable. That's another thing I found, they're not capable to make it. This is quite different from other people who are not migraineurs. We have different problems that we're facing, facing in that the migraineurs body is not, a liver is not able to create glycogen as easily and it's not, it's refusing to create it for quite some time. So we have quite a fight there. So there are some physiological separations between what people do. Uh, otherwise, everybody starts out with the protocol and we have what I call the baseline. So the baseline is when you have to cut out all the bad stuff and move on to all the healthy uh, stuff and also increase water. I haven't mentioned it before, but uh, nearly all migraineurs come in dehydrated. So that's another thing. We calculate how much water they need and they need to increase water and they need to increase salt with the water. So once they reach this particular level, which is the baseline, uh, then we decide what their next step is. Some migraineurs come in very, very close to the baseline. So they will get to this level within a day and they're there and up they go. Some people just increase water. We have people coming in who drink absolutely no water at all, and their daily minimum may be 13 glasses. So you can't go from zero to 13 in one step. It has to be an increase, a slow increase. You do like a half a glass per day increase and monitor for edema or other kind of problems which you may have. And then it can take a month to reach baseline just in water. And then they also have to reach the baseline in cutting sugar, cutting the bad food, and so forth. So some people don't even start really the protocol for several months. Now assume that they're on the protocol and just assume that they're at baseline. Some people decide that this is sufficient for them. This usually happens to people who are still younger and who haven't been taking a lot of medications. So their body is not yet compromised to the point of uh, inability to recover. 
many of them can recover within um, three to four weeks after they started protocol. And then as long as they stay in protocol and they don't fall off the wagon, which happens obviously to most, uh, most of them at the beginning particularly, they are completely capable of preventing all the medications provided they're not taking, I mean, all the migrants, provided they're not taking medications. If they do, they also face the medications because some of them, like I mentioned earlier, the calcium channel blockers, the blocker, the sodium channel blockers, they literally block these things. So even if you take extra salt, there's no guarantee that any extra salt will actually get to the cells. So we have to wait until they come off of these medications and they, I don't allow them to come off of them before they feel completely migraine free. So they have to be able to control everything and then with doctor permission and recommended dosage, they can come off of the medication with our support. And then they can decide whether they're gonna stay on the protocol and go to carnivore or move to keto. It seems that very many of them are now on keto, even in our regular group, they say, well, I'm eating the keto diet or whatever. So there's a little bit of a blur of where people are, uh, but it seems that um, everybody starts in protocol and then they move toward keto and they move toward carnivore. And the majority right now are in some form of, on some form of carnivore or zero carb and about 800 or so are on the ketogenic diet, but there are a combined is over 4,000 people. So uh, we are talking about a larger portion on carnivore and on um, protocol. I mean, it's pretty interesting to have, you know, several thousand people doing this now and, and getting the feedback. I mean, it's, it's, you know, as I've watched this sort of thing grow over the last couple of years, it's, it's pretty fascinating, you know, to see it, to, to, to expand like it is. And, you know, I mean, so far the results seem to be pretty good. Are you getting a lot of pushback from anywhere else where people suggesting that, that this is dangerous, this is inappropriate, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't allow people to eat meat because it's so bad for us and, you know, well, you know the typical uh, right. sort of things that are out there. What do you, what do you, are you, are you dealing with that much? Uh, I used to deal a lot more than I do now. I think that one of the reasons why is because we have um, the group itself has a couple of really uh, clever admins who check out the background of people, check out where they're coming from, and we also have developed a questionnaire that people have to answer before they even enter the group, so we can tell where they stand and the first bad comment out of the group. So in the group, uh, there is some skepticism. Yes, we have a lot of skepticism. So what we created was what we now call units. This is totally Facebook appropriate in terms of whatever they decide that we can do, we do. Um, we have hundreds of documents uploaded of, for people to read. And so now we put them into units. So it's almost like a school, migraine school. So now you have to read unit one and they have to check mark when they read them. So we know that who read and, and who didn't read and what they didn't read. And so questions come up, but in these units, there are all the answers. So that includes videos that they have to watch. Uh, that includes uh, scientific articles that I post in if, if it's uh, possible to do so, or write it up and I put that in or um, write a blog about it. I write on several blogs. And so we always post the blog articles in there for them. So in group, once they're in the group, I don't see that much of a problem. I see some skepticism, not resistance. Outside of the group, yes, tremendous amount of skepticism and resistance, uh, particularly Twitter and, and even on Facebook. And of course, I'm still blocked from all those groups where I was blocked five years ago. And so some of the people who come in from those groups into this group tell us that they call me quack. Uh, they have all kinds of names for me. So yes, we do. And we have 
um, I had big pharma after me several times. Um, one of my blocks is followed by bear because I was very anti-statin, uh, not statins, uh, aspirin and um, anti-cipro. And I was leading them, some of that movement too and filed a comment to the FDA. And um, so, yes, I, I, I have received nasty letters, a couple of them. Uh, one went to the FBI, by the way. Um, yes, there is some pushback and I can see why. At one point, I ran a survey in the group of how much money the, the average migrant spent a year prior to the protocol. And there's nobody under $20,000 a year. And that usually just the medicine. So it doesn't even include going to the emergency. And I remember I went three times a month. So I'm sure others uh, went at least that often, right? And so when you're looking at, say, just 20000 a year cut, from big pharma and a 15 to 30% of the population is a migrantor. We're talking about a huge financial burden uh, at, that's going to be cut from the pharmaceuticals. Also doctors, we have migrant specialists. So what will happen if all people follow a simple logical way of healthy eating that is healthy for a migrantor and um, that'll prevent all migraines? What is going to happen to these people? So yes, we've been getting quite a bit of pushback and every now and then, um, people come into the group with bad intentions, but we catch them right away and we just remove them. So it's, it has become much easier to deal with that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think <clears throat> the folks at Bayer, uh, you know, they don't get where they are today from a financial standpoint by people taking a couple, couple aspirin maybe once a year on the off chance that they get a bad headache. Uh, they make a lot of money when people take an aspirin every morning and every evening. <laughs> So like, uh, I, I would imagine folks with chronic migraines would have been uh, one of their biggest or maybe their original customer. So right. uh, it makes sense that they would, would come after you as unfortunate as it is. Um, one question I had uh, to kind of go back to when you were talking about, uh, and I think I know the answer to this, but I'll ask it anyways. Uh, have you seen anything with the folks doing the carnivore diet using raw honey since technically it's an animal product? Uh, or is there any variance is maybe a better way to ask that between raw honey and some of these other sweeteners? Okay, so uh, even though it's technically an animal product, it's still from plant pollen, right? So we have to remember that the original part of honey, what makes it sweet, is from a flower. Uh, and so the, hunt, the, hunt, the bees add their own saliva to it, but it doesn't make it into a, an animal product. It's still a plant product. It is also high fructose. So when we talk about high fructose corn syrup, well, honey is a high fructose syrup uh, as a result of the honey uh, of the honeybees or, or bees of what and because it's from pollen. So it is not it is from fructose. It's really not from glucose. And what the bees added to it is to convert some of that into glucose. I don't know, I'm not a honey specialist, but honey is out because it also contributes exactly the same way as any other glucose would to a migraine. So it really doesn't matter where the carbohydrates are coming from, as long as it's carbohydrate, except for milk, but even liver. So as you know, liver has glycogen in it quite a bit. Also some seafood has, uh, like mollusks will have a lot of glycogen in them. That, those are glucose that will cause problems for a migraineur. That doesn't stop us from eating liver because it is still an animal product, but we have to control for that with substantial salt afterwards. But when it comes to uh, foods that don't provide potassium. And I think the key here is that's a food that you eat that may have high carbohydrates in it, 
provide enough potassium such that if you have to add salt after that, you're not going to kill yourself with it. So let me give you an example. If you have a choice between eating uh, honey or eating a uh, sweet potato, if I'm comparing the two and assume identical carbohydrate levels in terms of glucose and fructose, whatever that is, if I ate the honey and as a result of all the salt, sodium that was removed from my cells, I now have to replenish the sodium, I don't have enough potassium to balance that out, so I will end up with an edema. But if I eat the sweet potato, it is a high potassium food item. And so if I not take sodium after that, I'm totally balanced. So we have to look to see what else is in that food. And if a migrainer is, uh, needs potassium for whatever reason, and there's no chance for the migrainer to have a slice of uh, salmon or, or avocado, well, by all means, grab a sweet potato or grab a, a potato and bake it and eat it because there's enough potassium in it that eating a ton of salt after that is not going to cause a migraine. That's really interesting. And I think, uh, you know my next question along the lines of the carnivore approach is, uh, and you alluded to this a bit at the beginning that there is some ranges when you have situations with runaway uh, ketones, but assuming the person isn't having an issue like that, is there a standard ratio of fats to protein that you aim for? Is it something similar to like the paleo ketogenic uh, diet folks where they're like a two to one ratio of fats to protein? Um, it depends on, I'm beginning to find that we have a lot of athletes. Uh, particularly in the ketogenic group. And so there, um, it can actually increase. We, we go up new now. This is in a process of changing. Uh, uh, we go up to 2.5 um, grams of protein per kilogram. That is how we so far have been measured. We go max to that level. I probably will revise that though, because I don't find it sufficient. So I'm just in a process. So for right now, uh, we really are... Um, in the ketogenic group, it is approximately, let's see, it's four times as much in terms of calories, four times as much protein as carbohydrates. And that's probably going to change to be perhaps five times as much. I will probably reduce the fat a little bit. So the carbohydrates is pretty much at 20 grams, uh, if possible, or less, uh, unless uh, the calories taken in are huge and then we can um, change that. Uh, but I think that the protein needs to increase. And also I find um, if you have um, uh, watched some of the other or read some of the literature about um, problems with choline absorption. And um, what we are finding out, many of us have run 23andMe genetic tests. Now, I know genetic test doesn't mean that we have a particular problem, even if we showed a variant, but it shows that we can have the problem. And then we go and have a, a blood test for homocysteine and other things. So I'm beginning to discover that many migraineurs have insufficient choline processing. And so that would require a higher level of protein consumption as well, uh, with some modifications such as egg yolks and liver and other kind of stuff. But I, it's, a, it's a fluid moving target at the moment. And so talk to me about meal frequency, because there's a lot of uh, research out there that suggests that, you know, prolonged intermittent, you know, different types of fasting schedules promote things that are potentially good for us, things, you know, autophagy is one you always hear about, but does that have any role? Does meal frequency have any role in your treatment uh, protocols? Right. Tremendous role. Um, so the three type of diets have three types of rules in terms of uh, time restricted feeding or, or intermittent fasting. 
but before I even get into that, it, it has to be said that fasting of any kind for a migraine brain is gold. That is the best thing that we can do. So if I were to come down with a migraine right now, the first thing I would do is not eat. As long as I have a migraine, I wouldn't eat. And it would just simply stop the migraine within a few hours. So that is a fantastic thing. So fasting has a major role in migraine prevention. And that's primarily because of the cellular recovery that happens after 16 hours of, fight, uh, of fasting. So in the protocol group, we don't fast because um, this, uh, the food and the medicine that people take, we have these interactions between being in ketosis and many of the medications, particularly those that affect the heart and cross the blood-brain barrier and nearly all of them do. So um, we have restriction there, but there's already only eat three times a day. So we cut out all the snacking. That is the first thing that we do. Then when we move into the zero carb, the zero carb is when there's no carbohydrates, I mean, there's no uh, dairy, just meat and fat. There we don't allow migraine or any kind of fasting because uh, of the runaway ketones, which I will mention later, we have a problem that the migraineur's body is not able to immediately switch over to gluconeogenesis in the right way. So not able to create the proper amount of glucose and release the proper amount of glucose. So there is eat protein whenever you feel like you need some protein, whenever you're hungry, or whenever you, this is the time of the day when you usually get a sugar crash, whatever. Eat as often as you want, but it's only uh, meat and fat. On the carnivore that contains dairy, it's a little bit different. So there, there's a little bit more flexibility so they can start a little bit of intermittent fasting. So most people on the carnivore diet follow uh, the time-restricted feeding of 16-8, for example. So for 16 hours of not eating and eight hours, within the eight-hour period, they can eat as much as they want. And I don't put restrictions on that of how often they can eat within the eight, eight hours. They can eat all through the eight hours for all I care. It has to be the proper food which has to be within the carnivore diet understanding, but they can eat as often as they want within that eight-hour window. And what we find is that a lot of people after 16-8 end up at 18-6. Uh, I am pretty much at a 23-1 on <laughs> most days. Uh, and so it has a huge functionality. In the ketogenic diet, um, we encourage also intermittent fasting. Um, I don't recommend anymore the three-day fast or longer. And that's because we have such low blood pressure and heart rate that um, what I found and two other people also found is on the third day of fasting, the heart rate drops tremendously and the blood pressure drops. So for a migraine already with a low blood pressure and a low heart rate, that's not beneficial. So I usually pull the plug from, for everyone to not fast longer than 48 hours. So that's usually the max that we do. And in terms of how frequently, many people say, well, I would like to uh, fast for um, two days, I don't know, every two weeks. And I said, why? Two days of fasting from Longos and all studies shows it replaces the immune system. So why do we want to stress the body to replace the immune system every single month twice? It doesn't make any sense. So we try to do the two-day fast, say, twice a year, unless the person has an autoimmune disease, in which case we do want to force the body to to recover faster and replace the immune system a couple of times to recover from the autoimmune disease a little bit faster. But generally speaking, the one to two day fast uh, goes for a couple of times a year and a regular within 24 hour fast as often as they wish. Yeah, you commented that people are on the quote unquote zero carb diet, which is basically just 
you know, animal products and no dairy, you, you tell them they're not supposed to fast, but so then they eat based, based according to their appetite. I would assume, right. I mean, you're not going to force them to eat when they're not hungry. They just eat as, as, as ad libitum, you know, just when they feel like it basically. Is that correct? No, no they will force if their blood glucose is low. And this is where we find a problem. Um, I recommend two things for, first of all, they have to keep on checking their blood glucose, particularly at the beginning when they start. Zero carb diet is very restrictive for a migraineur. I'm not saying for the population in general, but just the migraineurs. It's very restrictive. And uh, because of the trouble of their liver and the pancreas not communicating properly and insulin is all over the place and glucose is not available when it's needed and then too much is available when not needed, um, they can have extremely low glucose. And so they may or may not even feel that they have extremely low glucose. Some will feel shaky and whatever when this blood glucose is still in the hundreds. Others will not feel anything when they're already in 60. It's really scary. So they have to keep on checking. We recommend at least three times a day, particularly on the zero carb diet to even more often to check it, see what's happening. And if the blood glucose hits 70, start eating. Uh, it doesn't need to be much. Or if you don't eat, then start exercising. So these are the two things. And then if they exercise, um, we do a lot of sit-ups and uh, squats and that kind of things. As a result of that, um, don't recommend jumping. They can run if they feel like running. And uh, they check their blood glucose and usually it brings it up to 80s, uh, sometimes even 90s and they're fine and they don't have to eat. Sometimes it's not working and it's really frustrating, but they can be doing 100 squats and it's still not working and their blood glucose just keeps on dropping and dropping and dropping. That's when we bring in that, okay, you have to eat two ounces of steak or burger or something like that, or chicken breast, uh, something that will allow your body to release glucose faster. Chicken breast would be a pretty fast one. As, so you are, I mean, are you in the United States or where are you located physically right now? I'm probably a block away from you. I don't know. I'm in Southern California in Orange okay. County. <laughs> well, you might you. I mean, I'm in, I'm, in, uh, I'm in Orange County in Laguna Hills, so I don't know if you're nearby. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay. Well, maybe we'll have to hook up I'm in North another state. Right? I'm about 10 miles north of you. Oh, cool. <laughs> it's 10 miles south of me? North of you. Anaheim north Hills. of me. Okay, maybe you're like, where did you say? Anaheim Hills. Oh, Anaheim. Yeah, okay. You're by Disney World, basically. Yeah, so... Um, so let me ask you a question because you've got, you know, you've got a PhD in, in, in economics and, you know, with, a, with the, uh, you know, the, the focus on neuro, uh, neuro, you know, neuroscience. Um, so you've got people in here that are on medications or on Topamax and maybe on, you know, propranolol or other beta blockers. How are you dealing with that? Are there, are there physicians involved to manage coming off of those medications? How do you, how do you get around that particular issue? Because, you know, yeah. prescribing and deprescribing medications is kind of the purview of physicians. And so how, what, what are you doing to, to manage that particular uh, issue? Right. This is a very important question because it can get really tricky. Obviously, I'm not a doctor. I'm not an MD. So I don't have the right to tell anyone to come off the medication or start the medication. So yes, they have to get an approval. And um, also they have to be supported by the doctors for the proper reduction. So what I do is I have a schedule, which is much slower than the standard pharmaceutical schedule of reduction. And I have them uh, print that out and give it to the doctor. That this is the schedule. Would the doctor support it? It requires refills for a much longer time. Not all medications can be cut. So we need smaller doses. It may have to be you know, some, somehow made available to be able to reduce, but they always need to have a doctor um, agreement. Now, 
we find that there are many doctors who kick their patients out of the office. It's really, really sad. So we have uh, migraineurs who have to change doctor just for the reduction of the medicine. It's extremely sad. Um, we have got to the point that in some cases, the migraineurs simply can't find a doctor that is willing to support a reduction. And the migraineurs says, hell, I'm in the US. I can decide whether I want to take this or I don't. And then it's a responsibility of the migraineur. And we will support the migraineur. Uh, if the migraineur decides that, no, my doctor says I shouldn't and I'm not going to, it's fine. No problem with that. But they can't start the ketogenic diet or can't enter ketosis. So we watch that as well because of the interaction, interactions. So once they understand um, the hot and rock place study in between, and what we find is that many doctors who resent or reject after a while, as they see their patients completely recover, they fully support our protocol. Uh, many of them end up reading the book. Many of them are in my group. And um, some of them I actually work with and they contact me, well, I have this, what do I do now? So it's really funny that I'm doing that. But yes, I'm working with the doctors. I'm not working against them. And I clearly don't recommend anything a doctor wouldn't recommend. Uh, so the doctor has to support everything, every changes. And also I have a list of blood tests I recommend for my, my migraines to take, and they have to get the prescription for those from the doctor. So they're very much involved. Yeah, I mean, it's, and I hope, uh, like I said, one of the things I'm working on is trying to find a, a listing of physicians that are supportive to these types of diets, you know, whether it's animal-based or, you know, keto and stuff like that. And, and you know, we're, we're going to be launching something called animalbasednutritionnetwork.com soon. And so we'll be looking for people that are supportive of those diets. So people have a resource, you know, if you have a doctor, you, it's your right you know, particularly in the United States, you can, you can just change your doctor, you know, go get a new one, a lot of cases, you know, and so that's, that's, that's good to know. Um, what you, know, you mentioned exercise and Zach and I are obviously both big exercise fans. How, how do you incorporate that? How essential is that to incorporate? I mean, not everybody can go out there and run a hundred miles or do a hundred squats when they first come. There's a lot of people that have many, many, many uh, uh, health issues, you know, and, and, you know, I'm sure it's not unique to migraines, how do, you, how do you incorporate exercise and, and why do you incorporate exercise? Okay, very good question. So exercise, we know all, it always helps us. Everybody feels better from exercise. Um, so it has, <clears throat> it has an importance to start with. In terms of a migraineur, uh, to start an exercise is very difficult because even if the migraineur doesn't have migraine pain, uh, the migraineur may be dizzy, may have vertigo, um, maybe vomiting, um, may not feel an arm or a leg or maybe half the body. So aura, uh, you, you can't see. Um, so there are some limitations. So it's very difficult to start. So the first thing, of course, is you have to feel well enough to actually be able to exercise. So what we find is uh, there's a, quite a bit of period, and this goes back to how long it takes to recover, uh, for a migraineur to, to, to be able to start working out. Some of the migraineurs um, are very, very young and haven't had migraine for so long, so they can get back to the field and, and work out right away. But some, it takes years. It took me years to get back to exercise. Uh, and we also have to have a special protocol for the exercise. So let me give you an example. We have a marathon runner who ran a marathon uh, actually two weekends ago. And the preparation for the marathon, uh, she decided she's in a ketogenic group, and she decided to to totally do it under ketosis. So we put her onto the marathon fasted. 
which was really fascinating because you wouldn't think that fasting is a good idea to go and run your first marathon, right? But it is, well, first in terms of now, because since the migraine. But actually, as I mentioned earlier, if I had a migraine, I would go fast, right? So if you go faster to a marathon, that makes a lot of sense because you're not going to get a migraine during the a marathon. That sort of excludes it. The, the preparation is a lot of salt and water beforehand and during. So she, for example, had uh, these little bottles spiked to her hand, which is salt waters in, in them. And she would stop every now and then on the station as well to drink water, but she had salt packets so she could put salt into it. And we also take salt capsules or salt pills, whatever is available. And um, so I, for example, with my weightlifting, my training is one hour uh, long and it's pretty heavy duty um, lifting by now. And so every 20 minutes I have to take a salt pill or I'm just gonna die. So it's salt pill and water is necessary. So one salt pill, which is about 300, in my kids, 360 milligrams sodium with a glass of water, which is eight ounces. So we kind of have to, and we have to measure this all through the day. We all have apps on the phone and we have to measure it. So to prepare for the exercise, we start about an hour and a half earlier and we salt up uh, and water up. So we have enough to, to start and go. Then all through the exercise, we increase our salt and water intake. And then after the exercise, like after the marathon, uh, I recommended that you start with a glass of milk which is what she did, because that provides the electrolytes necessary, also some protein right away, uh, which is a good thing. And then she can return to whatever eating. So we do encourage a slow get go on, but all be, always be cognizant of the need for salt and for protein. Yeah, a couple of interesting points, just about your, 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 your point about milk being an electrolyte source, because milk is basically, it's basically, it's basically you know, ultra filtered of blood basically. And so blood contains a lot of electrolytes or blood sodium levels are, are pretty similar to salt water. I mean, you know, we, we were, we were saltwater creatures before we got on the land and so on and so forth. And so we're very iso osmotic with, with salt water with our blood and, and, and likely milk in some degree. Uh, although milk, milk does have a lot of sodium in it, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Um, let me ask you about another topic. Uh, there's something called a scintillating scotoma or an ocular migraine or a visual migraine where people have these little, almost like a blind spot, like that kind of, are you seeing that as part of the, I mean, do you, can, do you consider that in the realm of migraine headaches? And, and, and is that something you see people talking about? Yes, actually, if you look at my book, uh, I have added to the standard aura, I believe 34 more, and these are incorporated, included. Um, as it turns out, um, literature says that very few percent, I think it's like under 20% of migraineurs have aura. But if we add all these other kind of dis visual disturbances, and I'm not talking about auditory, just visual disturbances, uh, I would say that it's more over 80% of migraineurs have them. And we have them regularly. And those are our prodromes. Um, every, nearly everybody has them. Yeah, I mean, can you discuss more? Because, you know, uh, what other auras are out there that people might not associate with migraines? Okay, so the low point, I can tell you mine, for example, is some if you a flashlight. It's almost like somebody just put a flashlight into my eye. And when I look, there's nothing there. So it keeps on coming and going. It can move around. Um, I have fireworks. I actually love them, which is beautiful. It's a blue and it's usually just one color, blue or white uh, color. Things fly toward me and then they dissolve, disappear. Uh, some people who will read a line or in a book and suddenly a line will be crossed over with uh, something or blocked out. They may have a dot where, or several dots where they can't see. 
you may see something that is different from, you know, when you have a little blood in your uh, eyeball and it kind of floats, little floaters. Um, when a, an aura or a visual disturbance would be a spot that is not floating, but you don't actually see through that spot. So you have maybe a tiny dot or you may have many dots that look like a whole lot of bugs in there. You can have a waviness. It can appear like uh, raindrops uh, and it just distorts things. Uh, we have just so many. It's, it's really amazing. Are there any that are maybe auditory or otherwise sensory that, that, that occur besides the visual stuff? Some people say that they have the tinnitus, for example, that would be an auditory, but I don't see it as a prodrome. It's more like a permanent kind of a thing, and it will lessen with the proper treatment that, that they use. It may never disappear, though, because tinnitus has other uh, reasons as well, like the death of the, 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 the little uh, cilia. Um, there could be um, other kind of noises. Some people may smell uh, suddenly an odor coming up. But the question is, is that smell really not an existent smell? Is it something that isn't really there? Or is it there just other people can't smell it? Uh, because you have such strong ability to, to smell and hear, we can't tell if it's real or not. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, it's very, very reminiscent of seizure proteromal type symptoms where people will suddenly smell a weird noise and they, they you know, have a, have a seizure. Can you, can we generalize any of this information into headaches in general? I know your specialization is in migraine headaches, but I mean, there's a lot of people that suffer from all types of headaches, cluster headaches, tension headaches, you know, caffeine withdrawal <laughs> headaches. I mean, can you, can you, do you, do you have people outside of migraines, uh, you know, uh, sort of contacting you say I've got cluster headaches can you help does this stuff help or do you get do you get into that at all yes I do uh, not too often I have several people who have contacted me with cluster headaches um, and uh, yes it's not a migraine but it's still helped by a same protocol it may not uh, remove it uh, completely and for example thunderclap I had a thunderclap my first one a couple of months ago I didn't know what it was so not every headache is going to respond to this kind of treatment. It's very specific. The migraine protocol that I have created with the ionic channels is very specific to target the ionic channels. So there could be other headaches, um, a stress headache, for example, or a headache of dehydration or a headache from lack of food obviously can be solved by the protocol because you drink and eat and so forth. Um, a sinus headache, we actually have a treatment in the group because we're so anti-medicine that we use a saline jet, nasal jet, not, not a little thing that you spray a little bit, but major jet and to wash it out. And it seems that we stop all of our sinuses um, before it even happens. The sinus headache is nearly a, a no-go in the group. It just doesn't exist. Um, so yes, many people come in who have other kind of headaches and, and it will help, but not everything. The like cluster, for example, will need oxygen, right? So it's not going to help fully, but if you remove the irritants, there's a chance that the number of cluster headaches remove. It may not cure it or prevent it, but it will reduce the occurrence. Yeah, I'm, I think it's, I find it's fascinating as, as we kind of, and this is just something I'm seeing evolve and you talk about oxalates and we've had oxalate guests on here. And I just think all the people from the different communities coming together, sharing knowledge, you know, in a, you know, online like we're doing here is really doing a lot to help advance knowledge very rapidly uh, possibly more rapidly than we see with the traditional methods, which, you know, FDA drug trials, which take many, many years. And there's a lot of problems with that, you know, 
you know, just, just, just a number of them that we, we don't have to get into, but it's very refreshing to see all these people coming together and sharing their information, both as patients and as, you know, practitioners uh, and learning because this is stuff that I, I really enjoy. So I know Zach does too. We learn something every time we have somebody on the show and we eventually build out a kind of a, you know, I guess a, a protocol for a lot of people. You know, for me, I'm obviously I'm biased. I just think everybody needs to eat, eat a bunch of meat and we'll be good. But, but it, but it's fun to have you on here. So tell us where we can find you. How they can? Where's the group you're, you're you 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 have the, the the online group and where people that want to get a hold of you can find you and what what you have, might have coming up. Sure, um, I have uh, several groups and several blogs. So the best way to get a, re- a hold of me is to look uh, on Facebook for a group that is called. Um, the stent migraine protocol for migraineurs who want to be cured. That, that is that one. And there's a ketogenic diet, a stent on ketogenic diet. So we have two, uh, two migraine groups there. Um, they can also just Google my name. Uh, it comes up right away for the, for the, the uh, Facebook groups and also for um, the books that I wrote and a couple of blogs. Um, I also now have a nonprofit uh, that I run which is endowed very generously by a migrant nurse. So we can support giving gifts to migrant nurse who, who are needy. And uh, we have licensees now who are doctors. We have an MD from Canada, for example, who is an MD and who is following the protocol with her migrant nurse. So if you, if they Google my name, Angela A. Stanton, there are a lot of Angela Stanton. So Angela A. Stanton, PhD, they can find me. There's also a blog um, that is not mine, but I write a lot of articles there, and that's called Hormones Matter. It's one word, hormonesmatter.com. And that is a company that um, focuses on all kinds of hormonal issues, as well as obviously migraines and uh, people who are flogged and um, several issues. And so I'm an, a writer for them. And of course, Twitter, my handle is uh, the migraine book. And um, um, an email. They can obviously email me at Angela at um, migraine-book.com. Did we forget to ask you anything, or is there anything else you want to tell, tell us about? I, I try to try to try to extract as much information as I can. But I, I, if there's something you really want to share with us, please do so. Oh, there's just one thing that kept on bringing up the the ketone runaway. If you remember that, I, I think that is very important because it is so ignored. Uh, and I have heard a lot of people who just jump into ketosis head first and follow immediately and never measure their blood ketones, which would be beta hydroxyburane. They just measure the urine. And they don't actually know if they are the kind of people who may fall into danger. And uh, in, among migraineurs, I, I strongly recommend for migraineurs to always check their blood ketones because what we find is that they are having a very difficult time getting into ketosis without having a major sugar crash down into the 60s in milligram per deciliter and having what I call runaway ketones. So what is runaway ketones? Ketones, uh, and this is by Feeney and Volak, uh, established in three groups. There would be the, um, uh, the nutritional ketosis, starvation ketosis, and so forth. And so the nutritional ketosis ends at 3.5 millimole per liter. So if a migraineur reaches three in the blood, we store ketones, we don't use it there. So that means the body is probably at about 3.5 already. So at that time, the migraine needs to stop ketosis right there. They need to increase protein. That's when the chicken um, uh, breast meat comes up with high glucose because at that time, the ketones can run away into the fours and the fives. We had somebody running to the eight. 
um, with high glucose and high insulin. It's ridiculous that it's possible to be done. So we can't count on insulin and ketone being in a precise uh, uh, seesaw. It doesn't work like that for migraineurs. So this can be a major problem. So if there's one thing I would like to just for takeaway is if you're a migraineur and thinking of ketosis, measure the blood ketones. It's like most important than anything else. All right, great stuff, Zach. Anything else before we before I go before I go eat me something? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was a, a fun podcast, uh, Angela. It's been great to have you on, and uh, uh, it's always fun to uh, explore a category that we haven't talked about yet. So uh, the migraines is a new one, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it. We'll uh, we'll link some of that stuff, those those uh, websites and social media handles to the to the show notes too, so listeners can can find you easily by clicking on that. Uh, but otherwise, have a great rest of the day and thanks for coming on. Thank you. Same to you both and have a great day and enjoy your meals. I'm going to have mine now. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.